When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello. So I'm hoping... I am now live and that everyone can hear me. I see Calvin's joined. I'm going to try and make Calvin a host here. So, yes, I think that's worked. Well, can you hear me? Yeah, we've got you. We've got you. Good to go. And James is here as well. Cool. Here we go. So James is in as well. Hi, James. Hello. Hello. So I was just going to quickly say hello. I'm George Belshaw. I'm Metro's tennis correspondent. I'm joined by James Gray, who works for the Eye, and Calvin Besson, who's a British tennis coach here. Uh, we are testing out this new app, uh, Locker Room. James and I had a podcast that pretty much ended around a year ago, didn't it, James? I think. Um, yeah, yeah, buddy. And, and then we tried to bring Calvin on board and relaunch it and just hit so many kind of stop gaps. And then, of course, coronavirus came just as we were about to go. Um, so we've been kind of stuck in limbo and had a lovely WhatsApp group, but no sort of podcast. So th- this seemed like a good opportunity to kind of finally get us all together, try out a new app, see if it, how it works. Um, yeah, this might this might be the, the most planned podcast we've ever had, given that it's about <laughs> seven months in the making. Uh, it's quite impressive, really. Um, George, maybe you should um, give us a little bit of background. You know, people will know me and you um, probably too well, um, especially given that your entire life is documented on Instagram these days. Um, but people probably won't know so well, Calvin, may- maybe you should give us a bit more. Or Calvin, even yourself, tell us who you are and why you're here. Uh, yeah, sure. Do you want me to do it, George? Or do you yeah. want to... Yeah, um, I imagine you know you better than I do, so I'm happy <laughs> to let you do that. Um, yeah, so I'm a tennis, uh, tennis, performance tennis coach. from. Um, I'm based in Yorkshire. Um, I spend a lot of time travelling, though, on the road with various players and have done for a few years now. Um, sort of coached, um, I guess, at all levels of the game. Um, spend most of my time at sort of futures and challenges um, on on British domestic scene, really. Um yeah, I'm sort of level five tennis coach, and that's about it, really. Well, well, Calvin, maybe maybe a good place for us to start today, then, given you know, as you say, your role in the game is is looking at what we've had before tennis came back over the 
two or three months when there really was absolutely none, not even behind yes. closed doors, you know, quiet sort of practice matches. How were most players dealing with that? And, you know, how much can you work on your game in that time off? Um, well, I guess um, it, it varied, really. I mean, the players that I know, um, some of them were able to, some of them had access to a private court. I mean, in the very early days of lockdown, for the first sort of six days, uh, sorry, six weeks, six to eight weeks, there was obviously nothing. Um, and then a couple managed to get access to some sort of private courts around the country and managed to get hit on that. But again, the problem with that was getting someone else in the vicinity who could hit and practice to the level. So mm. it was mainly just sort of finding somebody you could sort of feed them some baskets, that kind of thing, and stay on top of their fitness. I know the LTA were pretty good in sending out fitness equipment to a lot of players, and they helped out, I think, where they could. So that was decent. Um, and then once they could get back to practicing, um, I think there was a good sort of maybe a five, six-week period where there was just a lot of practicing going on, and now players were sort of traveling to practice with other people. Um and it was quite sort of an interesting time, really, I guess, because it was a sort of period of time, a sort of two-month period where you could work on your game, work on areas of your game that um, that you wouldn't normally get the opportunity to work on. Um, and I know a couple of players tried doing some different things, a couple of technique changes, that kind of thing. Um, and then... Um, and then I guess tournaments then started. They started with sort of in Britain, they started with the British tour. Well, they had the Battle of the Brits for the sort of top eight male players. And then there was a sort of variation of different tournaments, um, I guess, for the, the next level below that. Um, there mm. were some British tours and then there was a UK Pro Series at St. George's. And then there's been some more British tours and then there was a second Battle of the Brits, that type of thing. Yeah, I, I guess... You mentioned there some people have had the chance to work on their game. I remember Alexander Zverev saying at one point, you know, you'll see who's been working when we come back, which I think is pretty funny for a guy who's looked pretty <laughs> terrible since we've come back. To oh, very much so, yeah. But I suppose it's also that thing, you kind of got to see which way the wind is blowing because when lockdown started, I think, well, I certainly was a bit naive maybe and I thought, well, this will be a few weeks or something. So, you know, you, you wouldn't yeah. necessarily plan in that sort of long-term way, would you? No, you couldn't really, because I think that's what people often forget. And I know it's, it's the same about um, with football. Somebody was saying like that they don't, why do the players need a rest? They've had, fa- they've had sort of four months off, but no one ever knew that it was going to be four months. So every athletes were still training physically. You weren't, mm. I, I don't know anyone, any who took some time off because, it was, and I was actually at a tournament when, when in Greece when lockdown first started. Um, yeah. And it was basically like, I mean, even if you remember when they cancelled Indian Wells, the initial plan was they were still going to go ahead with Miami two weeks later. Yeah. It wasn't sort of mm. saying we're definitely off. Um, but mm. yeah, so there is that element of it that we didn't know. I think maybe as, as we got deeper into it, sort of, they, they had a better idea, but, you know, they knew they were going to have sort of, it became apparent it was going to be sort of, two or three months before there was a tournament. I think that was the best we yeah. got. Mm. And obviously, as you mentioned, we had things like Battle of the Brits. I mean, we also saw the Adria Tour, which I think can probably be a, an unmitigated disaster. I mean, it, uh, George, I know you reported a lot on this at the time, but I, my own feeling was that I, I was torn between two camps. Uh, from one side, it looked like a remarkably stupid endeavour because it, it seemed like they weren't taking anything seriously and that it was inevitably going to end in a whole load of positive cases and further spread of the virus. 
But on the other side, and I think this was Novak's defence, they were following the regulations in the countries at hand, weren't they? Yeah, they were. I mean, it, obviously, hindsight, it's quite easy to look back and really criticise him. I, I mean, technically, he didn't break any laws within Serbia or anything like that. But I think when you're gathering players, you know, from all over the world to come and play an event, you kind of need to be a bit more mindful of what's going on. So, that, you know, I can't say for certain that Dimitrov brought it with him from where mm. he came from, but that was the suggestion Novak and his family were kind of saying. But you you had to have more foresight with that. And, you know, the the stark contrast between that event and the Battle of the Brits was astonishing, really. I mean, you know, no media was allowed on site for Battle of the Brits, which is totally fine and understandable. But there were serious, serious restrictions on all the players on practice. You know, they couldn't even practice on courts that were next to each other. They had to have a gap between each practice court. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got these guys running around dancing topless in nightclubs, um, you know, having thousands of fans surrounding them on court. I mean, it, it really was quite an astonishing spectacle. And Unfortunately for them, it it ended in complete and utter disaster. Um, and you know we'll, we'll come on to Djokovic more later, I'm sure. But after leading something like that, now he's self-appointed himself again as the new leader of tennis. <laughs> and it, you, you know you have to admire the balls on this guy in many ways. Just the you know the complete oblivious nature to how it looks to the outside world. Hmm. Uh, I suppose, and actually, uh, I see that someone's asked, Lisa Stone's asked what we think about regional tours to minimise travel, especially for challenger level players. And I guess that partly was what the Adria Tour was trying to do, was kind of regionalise a bit more, although not with that level of player. I mean, there is something to be said, and I remember speaking to Jamie Murray really early on about this, where he basically said to me, well, actually, the players way down the level, this won't cost them a lot of money because... They're not spending any money. So realistically, it's a kind of wash. I mean, Calvin, you'll know guys at that level much better than I do. Is that a fair reflection of kind of what happened in the in the complete shutdown era? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the be- sort of uh, 500-ish um, and downwards, the players, the best they're hoping for is to break even anyway. So if they're getting it w- through through lockdown, that they were financially, they were no worse off than what they were there, there was sort of a, a there's a ranking issue there's the difference in that but they seem to solve the ranking issue quite well a lot of players didn't know where they were going to stand ranking wise because tennis rankings work on a 12-month rolling basis mm. um so i think a lot of players was quite stressed that if they were going to lose the points that they'd earned in the in the consequent in the corresponding months last year of when lockdown was but they solved that by making it a two-year rolling um, ranking. And so financially, and you know, they, they didn't really suffer it. Just everything went on pause, really. Mm. In, fact, uh, I, in fact, I know a few players who ended up towards the end of lockdown ended up actually making more money because a lot of them did some paid hitting and coaching <laughs> and that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, it's funny how it can kind of turn around on you there. But I wonder whether, you know, I've always thought that the, the crazy thing about that level of tennis, you know, outside maybe the top 400, is the amount of travel they do for tournaments that realistically aren't pulling a big crowd, aren't necessarily an extremely high level of tennis and just seem to be existing because they always have. I mean, do we need to look at a greater regionalisation of that level of tennis? It needs resolving, I think, yeah. I mean, and they, they were sort of, when they sort of rehashed the whole ranking system uh, 18 months ago, um, 
the initial plans I actually quite liked. There was talk of regional tours or or regional satellites. They used to have satellites, um, which were sort of almost sort of four week tours. Um, previously, about sort of fifteen twenty years ago, they used to have satellite tournaments, but they mm. ditched those, and now they're just sort of this this scattergun approach of tournaments all over the place. But it, it definitely does need need looking at just because as we've seen it, it it's been so difficult to restart it because it's the only truly sort of global sport that you can't just kick off in certain areas of the world mm. and, and i'm george i know you've done a bit of research on this as well the the, re, the regional sort of route seems for, if anything from like a green standpoint there's a heck of a lot of air miles being racked up by tennis players that maybe don't need to be yeah i mean I, one of the um ITF presidential candidate uh, Dave Miley, he, he spoke to me about his vision for revamping this um, when he was running and obviously lost quite badly in the end to Dave Haggerty. Um, mm. But he had some really interesting thoughts about just generally how the game should work. And one of those was having like, I think it was three regional tours that then feed into the main tour. So you get players from like Australia and Asia traveling around in that section players in Europe traveling around in their Euro-Africa zone or whatever, and then a kind of uh, a Pan-American sort of thing. And I, I thought that was quite a, a nice idea, for perhaps for like more junior level than necessarily like challengers or whatever. But the idea that you can kind of reduce players' costs by keeping them into a region. Um, also, environmentally, obviously, a lot better to kind of cut. I mean, I will say one of, the, one of the things I will say on it is that you don't, it's up to the players to do the traveling. You can just play in Europe if you mm. want to. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you know, and it's like and the the Asians can just just play in Asia and Australia. It's more what what happens is the players are looking for the sort of the best tournament option in terms of the level. Um, because the, the, one of the strange things with tennis down low is that on any given week there'll be somewhere between sort of 10 probably anywhere between eight and 15 futures tournaments and they've all got the same amount of points going on them and the level in them will be greatly different between them you could have one in france that is pretty much a challenger tournament and at the same time you could have one in mozambique where there'll be five or six players who barely hit a ball before yeah Uh, i i suppose it, it it does highlight and it brings into sort of tighter focus the problems that have always been there you know this isn't a COVID-19 problem, really. This is something that, that has always existed, that yeah, totally. a lot of tennis players aren't solving. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and everyone's relying on sort of uh, sponsorships, governing bodies, that type of thing, um, which is what we one of the, you know, as we go back to the sort of financial element of it, the British players, a lot of them have made a lot of money since we've come back to competition because the prize money events have been pretty decent. They've made more money than they'd, they'd ever make in a full year of tennis, really. Mm. Yeah. Um, let, let's move on to a little bit of a, a sort of breaking news, although I think it's been kicking around for an hour or two because it, it is still relevant. Um, you know, it, COVID basically brings everything together. It makes segueing extremely easy. Um, Benoit Pair, we understand, has tested positive for COVID-19. Um, George, maybe just tell us exactly what that means and, and the kind of situation of play if you like yeah well the the obvious starting point is he's out that's him mm. done um which you know from his perspectives a loss of like forty five thousand pounds or whatever so that, that's a bit of a kick in the uh kick in the teeth um and he's got to stay in his hotel room for <laughs> 10 days or something so not the best news to be getting i'm sure 
Um, so Marcel Granolas has gone in the uh, the draw instead of him. Um, the state of play is essentially now they are going to try and trace who he's been in contact with. Um, and this is where it could get very, very nasty for the USTA and for the player body, because in theory, you know, Benoit Pair is a very social, outgoing guy, shall we say. So he, he may well have been kicking around with a lot of people. There's a strong French group who are quite tight. Um, and so we should say is that, that they were allowed to do that, right? They were inside the bubble together. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, again, this, this is where you're going to get kind of different interpretations of how these rules should be applied. But my understanding is from speaking to most of it, there has been an attempt to social distance within the bubble for mm. most people, but that, that it, I don't know, it's, it's going to be completely down to the individual, isn't it? And then the, the other issue you've got here now is our players going to be honest and be like, okay, yeah, I, I was sat with Benoit last night playing cards or whatever. Um, take away £45,000 from me and kick me out the drawer and leave me here to isolate for two weeks, you know? So it, this, this certainly presents a really interesting challenge. I mean, hopefully it, it is a one-off case and we don't have a big spread, but it, it is certainly feasible that this could really you know, drill a hole in both draws. But let's hope that's not the case. I mean, which we definitely don't need because obviously, well, especially the women's draw, and we'll come on to it, but you know, they've already lost. What, six of the top ten have gone um, yeah. either through injury or through just not wanting to travel. So, you know, this is a tournament that doesn't need any more people being struck out. Um, we do understand there are a few players isolating because of this positive test. Um, I, I think I'm right in saying Benoit Pair arrived into the bubble at the very last possible moment. So if you like, this is as if the bubble had been secure, this is the sort of last point at which someone might test positive who had come in with it because of the vagaries of testing and um, what they call incubation periods. I mean, I'm no expert on it, but does that sound about right? I, th- I think, the, yes, that is right. But the issue is, obviously, there's a seven-day period behind what Pear will have brought. So, in, in theory, we may not see another test. Someone could just test positive in a week's time who's already got it from Pear, if that makes mm. sense. So, that, yeah. so now someone's got it all of that kind of becomes a bit irrelevant as a timeline. Um, but he, w- he was very ill in his match against Chorich, of course, and he'd lost six love, one love, and then retired. So, you know... I mean, would that not inkling. raise some alarm bells? <laughs> yeah. Your, I, mean, yeah, I was going to say, like, wouldn't, wouldn't he get tested? Like, wouldn't it be smart to test him straight away after that match? Like, they seem to have given it almost a week. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I th- again, I thought... I was under the impression testing was happening pretty much daily but um, yeah that's what i was told you know it's a strange thing though that it, it, he's got um it's it's a week later when i don't know maybe you know i don't know how long the tests take to come back but it just seems but, a very sort of it, it's feasible but it just seems very sort of up and down how, it, how it's come out at this time well i can speak to my own experience on this actually the, the uh, irregularities with testing um because i, I came back to my parents during lockdown for a little bit of time um and my dad i'd been really ill at the start of lockdown and i was certain i'd had it you know i'd been in bed for four days feeling awful my housemates had lost their taste and smell so we were pretty sure we'd all had it so my dad was like oh why don't we go and get you an antibody test then so we turn up 
he, he has one as well, just out of curiosity. Um, and it came back negative. It was one of those ones that they do kind of an instant testing thing. Right. We were both like, like t- totally bemused by this. And then there was a another option that you could send off your, you know, for another fee, because this is all kind of private stuff. Um, there's another option that you could send your test off to the lab and it will come back in a couple of days. And lo and behold, that one came back positive. So, you know, so the instant testing essentially probably isn't as accurate, which makes sense, right? Yeah. I think we're trying to claim on the, you know, in this little surgery, that one of these pop-up ones that uh, it's 97% accurate. So I, I, I certainly would quibble with that <laughs> accuracy statistic unless I was one of the 3%. But um, <laughs> that, you know, that just goes to show the kind of precarious nature of this testing and how Benoit may have slipped through the net, I suppose. Well, hopefully, I mean, uh, and uh, this may have no impact because we know what tennis players are like, but hopefully this should be a wake-up call. If, if, people are, if people have gone into the bubble and had an attitude of, well, you know, we're in the bubble, so we'll be fine, maybe this is better to happen now than four days into the tournament and people taking the mick a bit and things aren't functioning necessarily properly. I mean, that, maybe that's a bit overly hopeful, I don't know. Well, well, Caroline Garcia, she said in her press conference today, straight after the news, she said pretty much exactly that, that it, it kind of has actually reinforced, you know, the view that these these, regi- these these rules and restrictions in place aren't extreme, but they're actually very, very important. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think hopefully that's a, a view shared by the wider tennis body. But um, you know, Dan Evans, he also was talking a little bit about kind of isolation and he was saying, he was kind of having a bubble within a bubble sort of thing. So he was only hanging out with certain British players, um, kind of keeping the number of people in co- he was in contact with. He wouldn't go for like big dinners with people or anything, trying to social distance. So I, I hope that most are taking it pretty seriously. But as we said already, we'll find out how many people Benoit's been in contact with, I suppose. <laughs> and, uh, and as you mentioned, that number could be higher than we expect. Or lower could be either maybe maybe he's had a quiet week uh not not sure um let's move on before we actually libel someone um and talk a bit about uh what, what went on in cincinnati i mean there's so much to get stuck into here but i guess the headline um which i saw someone on twitter have a go at you for not mentioning george is that novak Djokovic competed his second career golden masters now my understanding is that you can't have two career golden masters but anyway he won the tournament that's the important thing yeah, I've had a lot of people having a lot of goes at me recently. I've... I mean, there's good reason. Have you seen your hair recently? <laughs> <laughs> but because this is an audio app, you won't know that George currently is growing out his bleach blonde hair, but he's growing it out in a top knot form. Uh, and actually, when I met him in King's Cross for a socially distant pint the other day, I didn't recognise who he was. Um, but then, I, of course, I realised that only he could have that hair. So... You know that does happen, George. But you can you can move on from the Twitter abuse and, tell, and you can now make up for your failure to praise Novak sufficiently. Yeah. So, despite you know perhaps airing some less great views about some of the stuff he's up to, I am ready to shower him with praise for the level of tennis he's producing at the minute. And I think I said the other day I, I don't see a single matchup that I see him losing this year apart from Nadal on clay at the moment. I mean he just looks on another level. And even mm. when he's not playing particularly well, he just seems to 
be able to find his way through. I mean, a lot of people are kind of making out that Federer and Nadal being out of the US Opens, like, you know, somehow going to go against him. But I mean, Nadal hadn't won a set against him on a hard court since 2013. Federer's not beaten him at Grand Slam to, since 2012, even though he got mighty, mighty close at Wimbledon last year. So, you know, I, I don't buy that those two being out makes it any less of an achievement for him per se. Um, if I'm going to name the threats to him, I think we'd all agree Daniel Medvedev is probably number one on that front and Dominic Team a close number two. But perhaps you guys have different thoughts. Sissipas as well, I'd probably chuck in there. I mean, it's one of those three, Calvin, which, which if you had to pick only one of them, which would you pick? Um, I'd, I'd probably say that Team's probably the one who, just on the basis that he can he can just have one of those days where he can blow him away, but Team's record at the US Open is, doesn't suggest that's going to happen this week. Medvedev sort of plays a, a similar style, I guess, to, to Djokovic, but Djokovic is the best of anyone that's ever played the game in, at that style, so... It, it would need him to have a, an off day, I would, I would think, and, and you kind of get the feeling that Medvedev isn't quite what he was last year at this time. Um, he's probably, uh, I'd say, Djokovic is probably happier to see that Stan Wawrinka's not in the draw more than um, Federer and Nadal, because yeah. I think he, he's one player at the Slams who do, who seems to believe that he can beat Djokovic more than any others. I think, mm. I think I'd say Kyrgios as well. Just because there's a bit of bite between them. Uh, yeah, I'm not there's would beat him in a final, but if he yeah. drew him early, I think well, that... I don't think. I'm not sure. Maybe I don't know whether he did it at the, um, Aussie Open, but I don't think he's been in the second week of a slam now for five years. So, yeah. so it would need to be an early draw. But, yeah. Um, but still, he's never lost to Djokovic. I know they played at a time yeah. where Novak wasn't his best, but he's certainly someone with the the game that could potentially on an off day for Novak and a perfect day for him go wrong. But, I mean, we are really clutching at straws for people to beat this guy at the minute. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's tough to see anyone other than Medvedev or perhaps team. But, you, you, you know, you'd say that even those two are what, you know, you'd give them 15% chance at best. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, we, we hope it's not an open and shut case, but it very much could be. Uh, just talking about Pass actually, uh, I enjoyed his Cincinnati Masters run, um, uh, which he was only allowed to play giants with big serves. Uh, the consecutive matches he played Kevin Anderson John Isner Riley Apelka who's of course the tallest man in ATP tennis history and then <laughs> Milos Ryanich. I mean I, I, I know it, I'm being sort of slightly flippant about it but it's, it must be slightly frustrating when you're playing what is effectively a warm-up tournament for a US Open and you just keep playing the same player every time <laughs> and probably played all of the big servers there's, there's not many there's not many others on, on tour is there yeah, I just wonder whether he comes out of Cincinnati and goes, I wouldn't mind it, the odd five-shot rally if I'm <laughs> just to try and see the ball a bit better. But then I kind of look at his um, his US Open draw and, and I think he's got Ramos Vinolas in the first round. So if he needs some rallying, he's going to get some there, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm just sort of just thinking there. I'm back to Djokovic. I guess he, you know, he, he although he beat him the other day, I don't think he ever fancies playing Batista Agut. Um, he, so that, he, that, that's another one. Yeah, well, he obviously did. You know, he dropped sets in the semi and the final in Cincinnati. He he lost the first set six one to Milos Raonic. So you know, he's clearly not playing perfectly, is he? I think it's more that the thing is with him. I mean, I've I've sort of got a theory that he's the best match player of any sport ever. 
he just seems to sort of manage his way through matches and I don't think it really bothers him when he goes a set down that kind of thing and you know I don't think there's anybody who's ever in any sport has such a faultless record against his two biggest rivals who also happen to be two of the th- five greatest players of all time as well it's mm. phenomenal really what he what he keeps churning out and probably he's mm. underrated if anything yeah um I, I suppose that is the thing you always have to say with tennis isn't it it's so hard to say empirically how good someone is you can only really look at what's come up in their era and yeah as yeah. you said Djokovic has been up against plenty of the greatest of all time so you can't really really fault him there. Um, I'm going to sort of ask you to delve both of you into the back catalogue of, you know, players who usually get to the third round and do nothing for a a dark horse. Uh, I can't remember, George, exactly what our specification for a dark horse is, but I would suggest um, unseeded uh, someone to make the second week is basically what we're looking for. Uh, George, I'll start with you because I'm sure you've already come up with names no one's ever heard of. Uh, If you had to pick one in the men's draw, who would it be? Oh, God. Unseeded, are we saying? Well, yeah, I think I think so. Although, you know, in the women's draw, that's going to get even harder because, you know, if you're not seeded in the women's draw, you're probably not in the top 100. Well, um, <laughs> I think I've actually picked an unseeded player in the women's draw in my breakdown to to go quite far. Um, oh, well, since you've got that to hand, who's that? Well, that was Azarenka, so that's a bit of a cheat, actually. <laughs> Did you pick that before her run at Cincinnati or not? I I picked it during her run in Cincinnati. Mm, and it, okay. and I said in my copy that uh, if I'd have been making that call a week earlier, I'd have looked absolutely uh, off my head, essentially, because she was in absolutely dreadful form um, before that. But just seemed to suddenly come together. And I, I did slightly look, like the look of her draw. So I mm. did go for her. Um I'm I'm desperately racking my brains for the men. I mean, there's there's some segments of the draw. I mean, this is the thing, right? You, you basically want to look at the draw and find a segment where you think, well, they might not go well in the first week, and two seeds lose early, and all of a sudden it it opens up a lot. And yeah. there aren't too many areas. I mean, I, th- I think the ones Verev section. I think he plays Anderson first round. Yeah, that that, that is a a serious banana skin. That's a shocker of a draw for him, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's a tough one. But, but I'm not sure. So Anderson is unseeded, actually. So yeah. he, he's not a terrible shout, but I'm a little worried he won't have the fitness to to go this deep at the moment. I might be wrong. but I mean, um, if you think that Zverev's in trouble, um, and looking at that that area of the draw, I mean, he is seeded. But Hubert Herkash is a guy who people have been quite excited about on a number of occasions. I think he was ATP Young Player of the Year two years ago, off the top of my head. Um, I, I, he's got a, what looks like a relatively soft draw, you know. In his section, the seeds are himself, Manorino, Schwartzman, and and if we lose very early, then that that opens right up. But yeah. you know, otherwise, I guess there's so little form at the moment that it it's hard to see. You know, has anyone come out of lockdown, as Zverev says, and looked really good? Djokovic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Raonic. Yeah, yeah, Raonic is playing well. Uh, that, that, Ryanich is a funny one though because you know we've always been waiting for Ryanich to play well for six or eight months and then he gets injured again is this is this his time are we finally going to see him pull his finger out a bit um, I mean it, it, it's difficult because obviously I think it, what's he, has he been to two finals has he been two slam finals or just one just, right, yeah. just the one I think yeah yeah a couple of semis I think um, but 
I kind of think it's just he kind of is what he is, um, you know, and he, he can blow people away, but he, he's, he's, I just can't see him in the second. You know, I just don't. There's certain players I think he'll always struggle against, mm. um, and I think that that's the problem that that he has. Yeah, um, let's move on to the women's side of things. Because... I mean, just uh, before you go on, Sorry. I'd say that the 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 unseeded one you can see going far is obviously Andy Murray. Yeah, that's, 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 <laughs> yeah, that's, I forgot about him. We probably should have mentioned him. <laughs> the guy, the guy who's won three uh, slams, might, might sort of um, might be a pick. Although he plays Evans in the third round, though, doesn't he? So, well, he, and, and, and Felix in the second, that would be a good match. Yeah, yeah. Seen, that would be a good, Although, interesting one. I think anybody, if, if Murray's got somebody who has a hole in their game, he'll he'll pick at it, and I, I, Felix could blow him away, but I, I don't see it happening. And you, I'd find it difficult to see him not winning that much. Do we um, do we think a Grand Slam format is better for Murray that he's not going to have to play back to back days, even though it's five sets? I just think it, it, it's so difficult to say with it. There's so many unknowns because we we've listened. I was thinking this the other day. We, no one has ever been in this situation. We mm. we don't know what, what no player has ever come has ever sort of had a, a metal hit and come back. And he relied, he previously relied so much on his speed and movement that we just, it, it's hard to predict, isn't it? Because we just don't know what he's capable of. He certainly looks like he's playing some, some really good ball, but I don't know. There, there's a couple of things that left that, that are left to be answered, like whether he can go do it for five sets, which I suspect isn't an issue, but it's, it's more whether he can do that every 48 hours and, and keep doing it. And, and whether he can train, how much he can train to prepare himself to do that. I don't do you, know. They're just, they're just unanswerables. I was gonna say, do you do you want to hear my? I did a potential route to the U.S. Open glory for Andy Murray. Do you want to hear that? And yeah, tell go me for you it. Think you can do it. <laughs> okay. So round one, Nishioka. Round two, Ogier Aliassime. Round three, Dan Evans. Round four, Dominic Team. Quarterfinals, Milos Raonic. Semi-finals, Daniel Medvedev. Final, Novak Djokovic. Piece of cake, right? I mean, when you say it like that, yeah, why not? I mean, that's, he's, that's, he's uh... going to have to do a lot of chasing in those matches, isn't he? <laughs> like, that's that's the concern. He, he, yeah, I mean, t- team team is one of those. It, it wouldn't surprise you if team go that first round. I mean, he, he came out the other day, sir volleying, like mm. so. He, he might not have to play team. I mean, I would think that the match against Evans is, is probably a fifty-fifty in itself, mm. um, and Evans beat in Battle of the Brits, but. Um, you know, we don't know what, too much to read into that, but I know it was competitive, uh, and I know that Evans will fancy beating him. I tell you what's really difficult about judging exactly where Andy Murray is. I mean, as you say, there are so many unanswerables that we just don't know the answer to. But what's difficult is he's always looked injured. He has never yeah, yeah. in his life moved around the court like someone <laughs> who wants to be there. Like it's just you know, it's just the way he is, and so it kind of makes it really difficult to you know. It's like watching a horse walk around the paddock and go, well, that horse is injured, but it's always injured. It, it's really difficult to sort of make a judgment call on exactly where he's going There's so many intangibles because, he, like I said, he relied so much on his movement and speed. But yeah. on the flip side, he's got probably the best tennis brain out of anybody. So if anybody can find another route to it, it's probably him. But, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think in any sport, in any elite level sport, has anyone basically done what he's doing. I mean, Bob, Bob Bryan or Mike Bryan, I can't remember which now. Um, yeah, doubles though, isn't it? It's like, yeah. you know, less movement and that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I would say in a, in a sort of primary sport at elite level where, where, where so much sort of talk is put on the body, 
I don't think like, I can't, can't. Can you imagine like this is basically like Cristiano Ronaldo having a hip replacement and coming back two years later and doing well, actually, what he was doing before? I'll tell you the the exact parallel is Tiger Woods because Tiger Woods had a, a surgery yeah. that they that only old people have, and he said to the surgeon, yeah. "Am I going to be able to play golf again?" He said, "I don't know. No one's ever tried." So, yeah. you know, but but when that's the kind of thing you're talking about, you know, the greatest golfer of all time, yeah, that that tells you what you're dealing with. I remember Tiger saying he sacked his coach because he was like, "Well, there's no point in having a coach because he knows just as little as I do about what's going to happen to my body." Yeah, and I, I guess Murray's in the same situation. He's messing around in the dark. I, I I suppose the only thing I would say from what he has said is he's kind of talking about the Australian Open next year as a little bit of a target, which. I don't know whether he's deliberately trying to underplay his own, you know, just just kind of coming under the radar a bit, or whether he's just being realistic. I'm not sure, but I think he'll be a bit of both. I think that you know, before the match, that's what he'll say. But as with anything with with Murray, whenever he gets on the court, he'll 100 percent believe he's going to win that match, mm. and he'll believe that he can win that match. So he'll still be going for it. I, th- I think it, it's sort of logical and it's also not the way it'll work. Like he's also illogical a lot of the times. Like the other day when he was having to go at his team for not wearing masks, or for wearing masks, wasn't it? He, he kicked off of them. So, um, <laughs> so, um, and then, then I noticed that when they came back after the rain delay, none of them were wearing masks. Mm. It, yeah, I mean, that's Andy Murray for you, isn't it? Um, I just want to bring in a question from the uh, yes. discussion. Uh, Lisa Stone asking us um, about which... Um, is there an American male who has a chance of making the second week? And if so, which one... I mean, actually, when I was flicking through the draw earlier, I did write down Francis TFO just because he's in a segment that, that has an ability to fall to pieces a bit and doesn't have a, a bad draw. I mean, I don't know where you guys stand on him. Um, well, he, I uh, mean, he's gone. Go you go first, George. But I was going to say, to answer Lisa's original question, Isner is my round four pick for Djokovic. So that, that okay. would be him in the second week. Um, yeah, I mean, there's certainly no guarantee. I, I liked the form of Apelka, a but I know he had a problem in Cincinnati. Mm. Um, but he would have been one of my contenders to be, not a dark horse to win the whole thing, but a dark horse to be kind of second week quarterfinals as an unseeded guy who could cause problems. Mm. Um, TFO, he's, he's capable of doing it, um, but I've not seen enough from him since that first breakthrough run at the Australian Open where he got to the quarters to suggest to me that he's ready to be consistently reaching those heights. I mean, I'll give you his draw because this is one of the reasons I said his name. He's got Andreas Seppi, incredibly still playing tennis in the first round. <laughs> um, he's then either got Milmon or Basilashvili uh, and then probably Dimitrov in the third round. Now, I'm not saying that's an easy draw, but I'm saying they're all matches you could see him coming off in. I think Milman beats him, to be honest. Like, I, I think what? that's a bad match. Just because he has to play too many shots. Yeah, I, I, I think that's exactly the sort of match he'll lose. But mm. I might be wrong. And you're right. Like On paper, it's not like any of those players. I'm thinking, wow, TFO's got no chance here. But mm. Equally, if I'm going into that match and calling it, I'm probably leaning towards John Milman, which isn't a great sign for TFO, really, and his chances. But uh, it's it is worth pointing out, George, that John Milman has stung us before. 
Yes, that, that is a, I'm not sure Calvin knows this, but that, that was probably our most famous disaster with the previous podcast. We had um, Craig O'Shaughnessy on the show, who was obviously working with Novak at the time. And we did pretty much an entire preview show with him uh, to look ahead to Roger Federer versus Novak Djokovic in the right. quarterfinals of the US Open. <laughs> John Millman. <laughs> right. So then yeah. Federer that night. So that, that was a bit of a course, yeah. from our end. But... Wasn't it about 70 degrees centigrade as well? <laughs> yeah. That, that night. Yeah. yeah. That was, Millman's off the Christmas card list, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'd say, I mean, on the American ones, I'd say but I'd, I'd, I'd probably pick a Pelka. And that would, would have been the case before last week as well. The problem with the Americans is that, and, and this has been a sort of situation for about the last 15 years, that none of them can hit backhands to a decent standard. And that's that's every one of them. And I don't know what's going on in America, but every single new player that comes through, they've got a fundamental weakness in their backhand, going back to Andy Roddick, I guess. Mm. Maybe it's just, they're just not teaching it anymore. It's weird. <laughs> I, I suppose the, most of them are right-handers, and that's over on the left wing of the, of the court. So there's not a lot of left-wingism in the US. Maybe that's, <laughs> well, that's true. Fair point, yeah. Um, <laughs> We, we should we should move on to the uh, the women's game because it's been a really dramatic few days uh, and weeks. Um, in, starting with Cincinnati, George and I have spoken about this a little bit already. Naomi Osaka, of course, um, withdrew from her semi-final against Elise Mertens. Uh, the whole tournament was then paused for a day on the Thursday and she then sort of returned to the tournament and beat Mertens in straight sets. Obviously, a terrific stand to take. Um, she has garnered a bit of criticism in the tennis community for then sort of standing down from that stand, if you like. Uh, I'd be interested to hear where you guys stand on it. Well, I don't, I'm certainly not going to criticise her at all. Um, I think the situation pretty much was she was pulling out and she wasn't expecting the tours to make the move they did um again we, we've got some quotes from andy about this coming out this evening um so I'll, I'll leave you to read that yourselves rather than um hear me talk about it too much but you know he he kind of said he kind of explained how the situation was going on and a- andy actually was asking the atp and wta to um suspend the matches as well that was a conversation he was having behind the scenes but I don't think that was Osaka's intention Osaka's intention was I'm a black woman you know who's grown up in America this has been happening here for too long there have been too many ridiculous deaths and shootings and examples of um, you know police brutality I want to make a stand against this Um, so I certainly don't think she deserves any criticism for that what I would just say is that the circumstances kind of changed and, you know, from her perspective, it wasn't like, you have to join me and all take this stand with me. It was more the case that I'm taking this stand and I'm going to withdraw. I don't want to hold you guys to account over it. The tours come back to her, come back to everyone and said, we're all taking this stance, whether you like it or not. And, you know, Novak has actually had a little bit of a pop of that, pop at that in a uh, letter he sent around around this union. Um, not necessarily the pause of it, but the fact that no other players were consulted on it. He was very cross about that. Um, so, you know, I think what I'm saying is the goalpost kind of shifted a little bit and Osaka has then decided that she felt comfortable playing after that. And I, I don't really think we should be 
criticising her at all for that, to be honest. No, I agree. I think it's... I don't really see what the issue was on that front. She did the right thing and and once they'd cancelled it, I think they had to let her back in. It would have been bizarre if they didn't, being that she made it quite clear why she was withdrawing. Mm. Um, but, and, you know, and it's definitely, she, she, like I said, she did the right thing. It's amazing that she actually, she, she, she knew what was going on because Joanna Conter apparently didn't even know what was happening, according to her quotes. Yes, well, she, she can be notoriously difficult to uh, get something out of, even yeah. though she's perfectly aware of what's going on. But yeah. mean, that, that was totally bizarre as well but yeah i mean i get you know i think it's one of those isn't it with athletes i kind of get why if they may not want to go too deeply into it but it was most bizarre that she claimed that she didn't know what happened like she must have been the only person in the western world who didn't know what happened and then <laughs> but even stranger that she didn't have she apparently didn't even ask wh- why they weren't playing on thursday <laughs> <laughs> so like, you know, that was the strangest thing that she never asked anyone oh why have we suspended it you i mean respond- yeah, sounds like well, it sounds like Nicola Sturgeon last week was having to ask various public bodies whether she knew about something, um, writing yeah. official letters saying, "Did I know about this? Do I know about it now?" Um, yeah. There's a sort of people tra- almost trying to create paper trails for themselves to make sure that they're not accountable. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, for the record, I, I I agree with both of you on it. Um, I just wanted to bring in the, the only dissenting voices, which were mostly in the Belgian media, as far as I could tell, um, <laughs> complaining that Elise Mertens had not had proper preparation time or whatever. So, um, But I think there are bigger things at play than Elise Mertens' chances of winning the Cincinnati Masters, So, yeah. um, which I don't think is unfair to Elise Mertens. Um, but, but it was a shame for her then to see Osaka pull out of the final as well. I mean, that, that was a bit unfortunate. I find that I find that strange one actually and interesting because that, that she pulled out with a hamstring injury, didn't she? Um, yeah. And uh, hamstring injury is a strange one that they they don't recover in yep. two or three days. Nope. So I'm interested to see whether she what, what and and it's, it's one of those generally with hamstring injuries you've either got one or you haven't and it's 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 a sort of three to four week issue um, yep. and longer. So I mean if she's coming out next week and sort of playing at full strength i'm you know you've got to have some questions to be asked there i would think well you'll be you'll be pleased to hear calvin that i'd done my picks for the tournament before that and picked a target to win it well so, i same likewise I, likewise i i'm yeah now very concerned that that that's going to be a, another dreadful pick which james well knows i've made many of in the past so well no because you usually just pick one of the top four seeds and you know that's quite <laughs> wrong but i mean that's fine. I hope you remember that this time last year I predicted Bianca Andreescu to win the US Open. Yeah, that is. They, I have to actually, and I hate doing it. Give you credit for that. That was that was a a, a good a good lucky shot. I give you some credit <laughs> for that. Um, <laughs> going going into this this US Open draw, then I mean, it is going to be one of the odder US Opens for a number of reasons. There are seven hundred thousand people not going to be there, but on the women's side, you know, it really is very different because of the the fact that six of the top ten have pulled out for various reasons. Um, you know, you've got people up there, you know, Joanna Conte is number nine seed, which feels entirely wrong at the moment. But, you know, who knows? Maybe she proved us wrong. Um, Serena Williams is the news line here. She, she always is at the US Open, but particularly because she has the chance to equal Margaret Court's uh, record. Now, I think we're... I'm, going to speak for all of you here that we'll all be glad to see Margaret Court's record wiped out for a number of reasons <laughs> but it's going to happen with an asterisk isn't it inevitably I mean no more of an asterisk 
than is on many of Margaret Court's titles when players weren't travelling to the Australian Open. I mean, I just mm. find this whole idea to try and downplay one of Serena's Grand Slams totally laughable when Court, you know, half the best players in the world weren't making the trip to Australia in the 12 times she won it there. Now, she obviously yeah, I, I looked. Like, I think I spent some time looking who she'd beat in the finals <laughs> of those, and I think it was like something like like six of the players that she beat in the finals hadn't ever played a tournament, played any, or got to the second week of any other slam or something. It was a bizarre run of results that she had. Yeah. Mm, so Roger, Roger so Federer. So that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a fair point. <laughs> well, I mean, it was only like the first four, wasn't it? Um, so, nevertheless, I mean, we. we you know, George. I know you've said you picked Naomi Osaka to win it. I mean, do, do you really believe that this this isn't Serena's to lose? So, I mean, I, 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 again, I wrote a little bit about this earlier, and I, I do kind of have the permanent. Uh, I, I've had to write this piece basically for about ten slams in a row now. You mm. know, Serena going for number twenty four, and it, it is quite a hard narrative to make interesting in many ways now oh, i'm it, sure you achieve it though george oh i i really don't think i did but anyway <laughs> um but you know it, it, it's so interesting because she's come into all of these slams since coming back from pregnancy with a lot of injury problems with not much form for us to really judge on and this is the first slam where she's kind of coming into where everyone else is in the same boat so from that side of things it's quite interesting but you know, we have seen her play two weeks now, one in Lexington um, at the Top Seed Open, which I thought was a, a very funny name, the Top <coughs> Seed Open. I just really like that. Um, and then, you know, in in Cincinnati, in inverted commas. Um, so we, we've seen her play a lot of three-set matches, not looking necessarily that sharp. But, and this is the big but, it means nothing because she's in a different mindset when it comes to a Grand Slam. Um, I think she's in the tougher half of the draw. You know, Osaka is my pick. She's in the other half, but Carolina Pliskova has got a great chance of going all the way here. Her draw looks very straight. Well, again, as straightforward as it can be because, you know, the women's draws do throw up so many surprises every single time. Um, But I think Pliskova will be... If she if she's one of these players that does look ahead of the draw, which I'm sure she is, um, she, she'll know she's got a serious chance of going all the way here. Um, but Serena's, you know, if you which is the same conversation with Djokovic, you're thinking about who can stop her at Grand Slam level. No Halep's massive for her. No Andreescu's massive for her. If Osaka is down with a hamstring injury, that's another seriously good hard quarter gone. You know, this is a great opportunity for Serena, mate. You know, probably the best chance she's going to get. Um, and she turns 39 two weeks after this tournament. So you have to think there aren't going to be masses of opportunities beyond this. Um, mm. But I, I don't think she will do it right now. I, I've put her in the final, though, James, because I, I'm too nervous to back against her heavily. Um, yeah. But eminently predictable from great you. Great chance. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Calvin, Serena, hers to lose or not? Um, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, the women's draw is so difficult to predict. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if she's there on the final. But it, it, and, and she, she's sort of so strange to predict with now as well because she seems to have these sort of huge mental frailties. 
in every match that she plays, any match that gets close, it, which is strange to say for somebody who's won 23 slams, that mm. she sort of, you, you know, you're almost expecting it now, you know, when, with Serena, that when it gets to three all in the third, she'll be crying and everything. And it's just happening sort of almost too regularly. But what that tends to happen then, as we saw with the girl she played, was it Russ, uh, who she played last week? Yeah. Um, and, and she really should have beaten her, but, it sort of she the, the more mentally frail that Serena gets, the 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 more mentally frail that the other the player at the other side of the net gets as well. Um, I I would have picked her either. Um, I'm sort of very skeptical as to whether she wins another one. I think the draw would have to open up because I don't think she really believes that she can beat a lot of the players now, um, mm. and a lot of the a lot of the younger players don't have the baggage of having been battered by Serena in slams so often that I think a lot of the older players did. Mm. Um, that they sort of, you know, they have winning records against the, a lot of these younger girls. And, and that's such an important point. I think players have seen Serena now come back and lose matches and not yeah. win Grand Slams for three years. Yeah. Um, that, you know, that really does pierce your kind of invincibility. And we, we sort of saw it to a degree with Djokovic when he, I know he was having the elbow issue, but everyone suddenly believed this guy could be got at. And you had yeah. like Kyle Edmund beating him in Madrid or whatever. Yeah. Um, just suddenly players who you would never give a chance of beating Djokovic in a month of Sundays suddenly popping up and causing him problems until he had that match where he beat Nadal in the semifinals of Wimbledon. Yeah. Really. Everyone suddenly was like, oh, crap, this guy's back again. And the kind think, of invincibility comes, thing. doesn't it? The one thing that I would predict with Serena is that she, if if she loses, she won't lose quietly. There'll be another drama. There always is whenever <laughs> she loses, especially the U.S. Open. That's um, a that's a Belshaw esque safe bet. That one. That's <laughs> very easy to make. Um, it, does anyone else have anything uh, other to say on the U.S. Open? I I wanted to take issue with your Carolina Pliskova uh, pick, George, yeah. um, on the basis that it's the number one seed. So terrific from you, obviously. Uh, but yes. also that she's got Jen Brady potentially in the third round who, you know, I was talking to um, Greg Rosetsky the other week and he was very excited about her and thinks that she's kind of in a position for a breakout. And Caroline Pliskova, she's got some bad results on her record this year as well. Does that, if, you know, if those two played tomorrow, I don't know how confident you'd be in Pliskova. No, you know, I'm not saying I'm totally confident in Pliskova. I'm just saying comparatively of all the players who, have shown they're good enough to get to Grand Slam finals in the past and a player who has been world number one who, let's be honest, has seriously underperformed at Grand Slam since reaching the uh, 2016 US Open final. She just has a very good opportunity. Um, Mm. I I think, you know, a lot of the players in the bottom half of the draw are stronger. I I think Joe can have a run to the semis here. I don't see why not. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not saying again she will. This is this is what I mean about picking the women's tour. Like yeah. if, if Joe is hot in a week for two weeks, she can do it. And it, for her, the interesting side of things is is the mental aspect removed now. There's no crowds. Uh, you know, we kind of saw it looks. She looked pretty good last week, but I, then I when think it came to semi finals, she again lost to Azarenka. Is is it the problem just being in a semi final rather than like the atmosphere? I don't know. I was just going to say that on the, uh, you know, I think that when we're, everyone's talking about an asterisk because certain players aren't there for this Grand Slam, a huge asterisk has to be that there'd be no crowds as well because it, some players will feed off that. Some players will prefer it without the crowds and we don't know who they are, but it's a completely, that's the main difference for me than 
than any of the other slams that we've ever seen. They're pretty that, much they're going to feel like long practice matches. Yeah, and that's that's something I don't think helps Serena here. I know, like yeah. the New York crowd, if you've been there at night under the lights, they're electric for her. And it was the same yeah. for kind of Goff last year. Um, you know, and, and and to a different, slightly different degree for Medvedev last year in the way that yeah. he was kind of feeding off the crowd being against him. You know, he was on one leg for a lot of that tournament. So certain players, it really does spark up. And I know Andy has been saying the same sort of thing. He finds it really hard without the crowd. But we, as we all know with him, he'll be trying to pump himself up anyway. He's a kind of weird enough guy to do it. But I think you'll get some players who are a bit more self-conscious about it. And... Well, I could just do what Djokovic does and pretend that there's crowd there. <laughs> <laughs> was he doing his celebration the other day, pouring his heart <laughs> yeah. out to yeah. the three stewards in the stand? <laughs> and then, then he, he famously did the one against Federer last at Wimbledon, didn't he? Where he, he, put, he, he fully convinced himself that the crowd were cheering for him. Yeah. <laughs> was, um, remarkable. Yeah, well, I mean, self delusion is one of the most powerful things in the world. Um, <laughs> it's a job. He's pretty good at tennis as well, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, he's all right. Um, he's also quite good at tennis politics, it seems. Uh, now, George, I know it's been a real effort for you not to talk about it for 55 minutes. Although you I know, I can't believe it. Chomping um, at the bit. Why don't you try and sort of simplify it? Because, you know, politics in sport at the best of times is tricky. What's basically at stake here? That is actually a really difficult question to answer. Um, and th- this is one of the most confusing aspects. So I- I'm sure all of you on the call know what's happened, but there's been a, a professional tennis players association formed. Um, as of this weekend, this is not a new idea. This is something Djokovic brought into the room in 2018. Um, but players have tried to do this for long times in the past. Um, but it's been gaining momentum, and pretty much every time we come to a Grand Slam, there's some sort of talk around it. Like last year, Pospisil was trying to tap up all the the women's council players, the WTA council players. Um, so obviously that was a bit of a surprise in itself that it's just a male union for the time being. Um, but what essentially they're doing, the ATP structure, obviously you've got the, is 50% tournaments, 50% owned by the players. And they've got this kind of weird symbiotic situation where you've got three representatives on the tournament side and three representatives on the players side, and then a chairman who casts a vote down the middle. And, to be fair to Djokovic and co, it is understandable how that does become a very difficult way to work. But I think what these players haven't really thought about is because they're not legally allowed to unionise and threaten striking action, they're actually not allowed to do that. So you'll notice Djokovic is very careful saying this is not a union, it's an association because he's, he's actually not allowed legally to have a, a union across all these different countries. Um, but it is a union. But they're not allowed to threaten boycott and strikes. So right. that, so, but then the question becomes, so what are you going to do? So you're going to be coming up with thoughts, taking them to the governing body and try and work through it. Well, you're actually already doing that in the ATP Player Council. So, yeah, so that's, that's the question that I had when I was talking about it with my girlfriend, who doesn't really know anything about sport, but she is a lawyer, and she was saying, well, presumably these people is it because the ATP is corrupt and they can't get representation in the 
the ATP. It's like, well, no, like the guys who are leading it, you know, have been high up in the ATP. And so she was sort of saying, well, then why why do they need to take this sort of action? And yeah, like, and again, the 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 confusion that's emerged out of all of this uh, that Murray was talking about earlier was that there's the players had essentially given this new president uh, Gordenzi a timeline to kind of implement all these things um, for the men. And and that timeline's just been kind of, you know, the players have now decided actually screw this off we go. But where they go, I'm not sure because they, they don't have Federer and Nadal who I don't think they're going to get on board. They don't have Murray at the moment. Um, So in terms of pulling power, if players do start sitting out of Grand Slam tournaments, which by the way, you really need the women on board to do that as well because they're joint events. So I don't really understand why you'd want a male-only union if if that is your biggest grievance, paying the Grand Slams. Um, but without those big star names, Djokovic will not be sitting out Grand Slams if Federer and Nadal are turning up and winning. Will he? He absolutely will not be doing that. Um, so I, I just don't really see what they're going to gain from any of this. Um, but they've got support. They've got a decent amount of support. I think there are about 60 players um, who've signed up this weekend. So that, that, that's, that's not nothing. Um, but I, concerning there are no women on board as well. Concerning because... doesn't even cover it, George. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So they think they can, like, it, it, it baffles me that it didn't even enter their minds to go, ah, oh, probably uh, should get the women in on this. Unfortunately, there is a lot of talk that some of the grievances might be about proposed merger between an ATP and WCA thing. Um, because if you think about the economics of it, yeah, the women aren't paid equally on the tour all years round. If they did, I know there's not going to be a formal merger anytime soon anyway, but if they did start working closer together and putting that equal prize money in, then you would start seeing a lot of tournaments say, well, we can't pay more than what we're paying now. So you guys are going to have to take a cut, I suppose. And I think that is a genuine concern for some, not all, but some in that, these groups who are concerned about their own back pockets despite trying to uh, suggest they're doing it for the greater good. But we, Calvin, we I wonder what, oh, Calvin, I wonder what you think the reaction's been maybe at the lower level of tennis because this feels a lot like, you know, one of the arguments, and we've talked about it earlier in this this podcast, that that, you know, money further down the, the ladder is a problem do, do you think that players who have legitimate grievances further down the ladder will look at this as just the elite trying to sort of re-elite themselves well yeah i mean i think it, it, it it's, it's such a spider's web of complications this whole thing that there's i guess on, on some level there is need for a sort of players union maybe um in the the money down at the bottom end of tennis just isn't enough it, it's it's not it's not increased since 1994 the lowest mm. level of tennis tournament you're still they used to be called 15ks then and they're still called 15ks now because <laughs> that's the total prize money yeah um, and another thing i think what's concerning some players is that when when you're sort of getting the literature out about they're saying they need to get um more money to the lower ranked players they're talking specifically about challenger events 
And the challenger tournaments, although I do think they should have more money, that then that's not bad. You can still make money on the challenger tour and still make a reasonable amount of money. It, it's much lo- it's lower down. It's the futures tour that I think that the money just isn't enough. Um, and there's certain other things I think that that they they're sort of twisting a little bit. This whole thing's come out. I've noticed in the last week again about how the players only get. 15% of the, the money from Grand Slams um, and the Grand Slams keep the rest but that's that's sort of a bit skewed and not strictly true because I, I know for example that the USTA yeah. they, they live on the US Open the USTA sort of the training base and all where everyone trains their whole sort of infrastructure relies on the US Open it's not fat cats taking money out of this that their, their whole governing body survives on what the US Open earns I know that the French is similar in that the club tennis is entirely funded by, and they've got an excellent infrastructure in France, is entirely funded by the French Open. So to be saying that, that the players should be given more money, and let's face it, the, the least of problems that tennis has is players at Grand Slams not getting paid enough. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's abhorrent, the amount of money that they're getting. And they could solve these these prize money issues quite comfortably by just taking if you took half a million from the prize pot of each of the four slams every year and put it back into lower level tennis you solve all the prize money issues right then and the mm. players at slams wouldn't even feel the pinch yeah you don't that, need to, go on sorry i was just gonna say that and that, that that really is the most important point in all of this for me that you know if these guys are so bothered about looking out for the sport man knock a couple of hundred off the winner's check yeah a couple hundred thousand off that i mean why do they need to earn twice as much as the finalists yeah you you could solve the whole with with an extra two million dollars per year you could solve all the prize money issues in tennis at lower down levels and it wouldn't be they wouldn't even feel the pinch but i just get the feeling and i know a lot of players get the feeling that this is all sort of what what they re- what Djokovic is really wanting here is he, th- he thinks there should be more money in from the semi-finals onwards in slams. He thinks that that's where the slams earn their money because of the semi-finals onwards, the sort of top four in the rankings, and he thinks that they should be paid more. And that's quite that that's you know that is something for somebody who who repeatedly keeps getting paid three to four million pounds or dollars per slam win. Yeah, I mean it, it, it's hard to argue with because. You know, from a sort of business standpoint, yeah, you could you could almost portion off the top four players in the world and have them play each other every other week. And you know, TV networks. And this would never happen. I'm just saying that, yeah, they are the guys who bring in a lot of money. But sport doesn't work like that. You, you have you need the whole pie to make everything fit together. Some bits are more valuable, and also sport is to an extent a social endeavor. You know, you want sport. To, to grow and to create an outlet for people. And if it's just four blokes hitting the ball against each other every other week on TV, it's not yeah. really a sport anymore. It's a kind of, you know, I don't know what it is, but I feel like there is short-sightedness and maybe not a, a larger worldview involved in what they're trying to do. Yeah, and it's also, it all seems pretty vague. Like George said, there, what are they, if, if they wanted to sort prize money out, they could make a proposal and, and it could have been done years ago. It just seems now I've got some serious suspicions about what Djokovic is up to in this, and <laughs> sort of... you're not alone on that front, Calvin. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and, and you <laughs> that, know, that's he's, pretty he's... much the widely held view within tennis governance. Um... Yeah, and, and it's not—it's it, never sort of there's never talk of like increasing prize money at the bottom. It's always increasing prize money general. 
And yeah. I'd be very surprised if I don't think he'd be comfortable with, say, challengers going up and not and prize money going up and not the slam slam prize money going up. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's hard. I guess the the real question that people will be asking now is, what happens next? You know, they formed this union. There's sixty odd of them. There are no women. There are obviously huge numbers of problems with that. But what what is their next move, especially in the current climate? Yeah, so it's a good question. I mean, a lot of people are interested to see how the ATP are going to handle it because obviously you've had all these player council uh, resignations now, which yeah. you know seems to be coming quite a regularity at these Grand Slam events that we suddenly <laughs> have a swathe of people just deciding they're going to step down for one reason or another. Well, it's the only reason to get elected is so that you can resign. Yeah, well, it's certainly quite interesting if you're a tennis politics nerd like I am, anyway. <laughs> yeah, um, they also don't know. I mean, is it like who they got on from the lower levels of the game? It just seems like this seems seems like Djokovic and Pospisil sort of talking about how they want to get more money for or, or get better treatment for challenger level players. But uh, have they got anyone from that level in there? Yeah, there's there's, there's something distinctly um, conservative with a capital C about it, isn't it? Yeah, well, yes, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll help you nice people, but, you know, we're not actually going to ask you about it. Yeah, it's, and this is, um, you might remember there was a, a group called Tennis United that was formed um, by lower ranked players um, probably about a year and a half ago now. Mm. Um, and, and, and that was, you know, built up by very, uh, well, total unknowns, to be perfectly honest. Um, you know, no one knew who any of these guys were, but it did. I did kind of think to myself at the time when you had Novak and Pospisil talking about unionising at that stage that it seemed a bit strange that they wouldn't be reaching out to this group that's already in existence, um, and they could all work together if that's what. Most, I'm also interested to see how this works because, like, when I, I mean, Djokovic is pretty much unbeatable at tennis, but he seems to be wanting to go head to head with Gardenzi. Gardenzi's yeah. a trained lawyer. <laughs> no, Novak Djokovic was a few weeks ago talking about drinking positivity induced water to cure <laughs> coronavirus. So I think that might only go one way, that discussion. Yeah, it's yeah. not hard to add hominem, a man who believes you can change the molecular structure of water with the power of thought. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but, but all, all jokes aside, I mean, like the, the question of what next is, I suppose, how the ACP respond to this. Do they treat them as a credible threat? I suspect they don't, to be honest. Yeah. I suspect yeah. they realise that these guys legally can't be organising boycotts and strikes because they're not a union. Um, so I don't really understand what pulling power they have unless they suddenly get Federer and Nadal on board. And judging by their swift responses on social media and from people I've spoken to, that that's just not going to happen. They're as suspicious as anyone about the motives behind this group who let's not forget are very closely linked to a certain mr justin gimmelstop who um you know if we're going into tennis conspiracy theories i'm not yeah. convinced his hands aren't all in this as well 
Uh, oh, that's good. I said we try not to libel anyone, but we've managed it, so well done. Um, <laughs> but there's I, no implication I, that Justin Gilmstop has any illegal hands in this whatsoever, just for the record, but that's all right. Sorry, I Cal, I was, I was interrupting you with uh, making sure that we don't get sued. No, it's, it's one of those, like, I don't know what they, what, why would they boycott? What would they boycott on the premise of? Because it, are they really going to not play tournaments because players down at 300 in the world aren't getting paid enough? Like it's, yes. is 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 Pospisil, you know, our players, you know, because the players in the top hundred, they, you know, although they're doing all right, they they wouldn't, they can't not make money for three or four months. They need they need to play. I don't think they're going to just not play because they don't think challenger money is enough. I, I just don't see it. It just seems sort of a bit pie in the sky. And you imagine what will end up happening is they probably agree to put the prize money up at the the Masters series, and Djokovic will then sort of let it fall by the wayside. And he'll, he'll never talk about it. I again. suppose that the, the threat, it's a Kerry Packer situation. The threat is that they basically start a rebel tour. And, you know, I know, but that's, that, that is, if you're not allowed to unionise and you're not allowed to strike or boycott, that is your, that's, you know, the, the withdrawal of labour, which is the whole point of any sort of worker led movement. God, I sound like a real Marxist here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the whole point of that is that you need to be able to, to withdraw your labour. And the yeah. only way they can do that is by saying, right, well, we'll go and play our own tournaments. Well, uh, I, I think we all saw what happened last time Djokovic tried to arrange a tour and perhaps should hold <laughs> up on that one for a short while uh, yeah. until next year. I think we've had enough tours from Djokovic for one year. Uh, yeah, quite. Although the parties look quite good. If, they did you know, look good, yeah. Deadly and slow. In normal made. times. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> normal times. Um, maybe that's a, a good note to end on. I'm conscious that we've gone on longer than we expected to. But um, thank you very much for joining us, everyone. Thank you, George. Welcome, Calvin. Um, I've still got in my head an idea of a section where you give us your core beliefs and we call it Calvinism. Um, but, uh, <laughs> that's maybe uh, further down the line. Um, every week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally every week you're going to have to come up with some new core belief. And we'll just build a big manifesto and nail it to the door of Wimbledon one day. <laughs> All right, lads. Let's do it. We'll see you soon. Yeah, yeah good, good stuff, guys. Thanks a lot. See you later. Thanks, guys. Thanks, yeah, everyone, for joining. Bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.